welcome to Evidence-Based Crunch. I'm your host, Emily Gold, looking at all things parenting from a science and spiritual lens. Welcome to this episode of Evidence-Based Crunch. I'm your host, Emily Gold, and this episode is all about feminism and parenthood. The topic of feminism comes up in so many episodes, probably if we went back, I know we're just at the start of this podcast, but I think it's probably mentioned in almost every one. I wanted to devote a whole episode to it. And to be honest, this is a really complex topic, so we definitely won't get to everything. It's going to show up elsewhere. As always, I want to check my own biases. I'm definitely a feminist, if you haven't already guessed that by listening to this podcast. My husband also is a feminist. He considers himself a feminist, and we are raising both of our children to be feminists with feminist ideals. When it comes to feminism, I like to try to do my best to be intersectional. This is, though, a brief podcast, and I know that I am speaking as my experience as a straight cisgender white woman, and that is probably where a lot of what I'm talking about is coming from, and I will continue to try to do better and hopefully be able to expand this in future episodes. So now that I've checked my biases, I wanted to define what feminism was, and I was going to just sort of give a definition, but then I thought, well, let's actually look what the world is saying. So the first thing I did was just go to the dictionary, go right to Merriam-Webster, something just straightforward, and Merriam-Webster defines feminism as the belief in and advocacy of the political, economic, and social equality of the sexes expressed especially through organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. So that's our old-fashioned classic dictionary. Then I thought, what does Wikipedia say? Remember when anyone could edit Wikipedia? Oh my God, what would feminism say if anyone could edit it still? That's terrifying. We won't think about that. Feminism, according to Wikipedia, is a range of social political movements and ideologies that aim to define and establish the political, economic, personal, and social equality of the sexes. Feminism incorporates the position that society prioritizes the male point of view and that women are treated unjustly in these societies. Efforts to change this includes fighting against gender stereotypes and improving educational, professional, and interpersonal opportunities and outcomes for women. So I liked that. I thought that expanded a little bit on the very bland dictionary definition. Those were just two definitions. We hear a very famous quote. I found it attributed to Marie Shear. Feminism is the radical notion that women are people. And I think that's always a really good way to describe feminism, as long as the person you're speaking to, you know, understands that it's, you know, you have to say it with a certain tone. So we're talking about feminism, but I'm specifically talking about feminism within the lens of parenting. When it comes to parenting and specifically motherhood, I find that feminism gets much more complex. 
everything I've read both to prepare for this article and just really throughout my life from academic journals to magazines, blogs, Facebook, the internet in general, makes me really think that this issue may split feminism more than almost any other issue. So I'll link to some of what I read to prepare for this in the show notes. One thing that we know is motherhood is one of the only things that unites many, though definitely not all, women around the world. So many feminist leaders and writers have believed that it's an important issue to help get women involved in the feminist movement. So definitely back in the early 1900s and mid-century during the first and second wave of feminism, looking at motherhood was one of the ways that you knew you could involve lots of women. And yet, on the other hand, motherhood has also been found to be something that has kept women out of the public sphere. The author and feminist icon, one of the most famous authors, Simone de Beauvoir, whose name I'm butchering apologies, in 1949 wrote the book The Second Sex, and she notes in this book, I will quote, motherhood keeps women othered and never occurs completely in liberty. She advocated that women could only truly be free if they forswore motherhood. What has come out of this is scholars noting that the very idea of motherhood being the natural state of women is something that is actually constructed by a patriarchal society. So the idea that women are naturally mothers is something that only comes through patriarchy. So right from the get-go, so 1949, second sex is still sort of pre-second wave feminism. So we're, st- we're still pretty early on, and we already have one of the most influential writers of feminism at the time saying that if women truly wanted to be free, they needed to not become mothers. So that that was definitely controversial at the time. I think probably more recently, the idea of how to be a feminist mother has been in the divided camps. It's definitely still people who would say that motherhood itself is a patriarchal construction, but I would say that would be a pretty extreme view these days. And the bigger view right now would be if someone does want to and chooses to and is able to become a mother, how can one be a feminist mother. So we have, on one hand, sort of this real corporate capitalist boss mom, sort of the the mom that can do everything, the Sheryl Sandberg feminism view, let's say, of, you know, you you have, you've, you have the baby, you have the corporate gig, you're doing it all, the woman who has it all. And that would be one stereotypical feminist view of motherhood. I think when we think of this sort of boss mom view, it's definitely a very capitalist view because we are looking at this idea of you need to work to prove your worth. And like anything else in the patriarchy, this is sort of this big goal is to be the boss. You can do everything. And we don't have this for dads. There's not a a boss dad view. There's just sort of this assumption that you can be a boss and be a dad. It doesn't need to have those two terms together. And we also have this very feminist earth mother view. So in this idea of really 
this feminist view of being like an earth mother connecting with this true source of power that only biological women, and of course not everyone who's a feminist or identifies as a woman is a biological woman, but for those that are, this is the source of energy, this womb power, let's say. And what's interesting about that side, I've been reading a little bit, is how the radical right is really co-opting that side of things, especially, I just used the word womb, especially around the womb. So we see it from an anti-trans perspective. You know, only someone with a womb can truly be a woman because only someone with a womb can truly be a mother. I don't think that's true. I'm just telling you messaging that I'm seeing. And I'm also seeing the radical right in the same way they've co-opted so much of ideals around wellness have also started to co-opt some ideas about feminism. I think that these are some interesting debates that people can have on a very stereotypical level, like, you know, corporate versus earth mother, which is, I guess, in some ways what this podcast is sort of about. But I think when we really break it down, we're sort of looking at what do we need to be feminist mothers? So one question, I think the, one of the big ones would be the idea of leave, of parental leave, maternity leave in particular. I live in Brussels, Belgium, but I am originally American and I am also Canadian by marriage. So I get to see and hear about all sorts of maternity leave. Here in Belgium, the maternity leave is about 16 weeks, and then there is options for some additional parental leave. So I think you can take about seven months of maternity leave when you have a baby. In Canada, it has just been extended to you can have up to, you can have a year paid maternity leave that you can now extend up to. 18 months with that same year salary. So let's say between a year and 18 months of maternity leave, because obviously you need to have some sort of particular income and support if you're going to stretch that extra six months. And I'm sure as many people know, but if you're ready for a shock, if you don't know, in America, there is no guaranteed paid maternity leave. You get six weeks unpaid maternity leave, which is not very much or anything at all. And After that, sometimes your employer can give you additional leave and they don't have to. So maternity leave, those are just the three examples that I sort of live with, but it can be way more than that because I live in Europe and I live in the center of Europe. I have friends from all over the place. So I hear about the Scandinavian leaves, which are often similar to Canada, which can be a year or even a little bit more than a year. And some countries require the second partner to take some of the leave in Canada that's optional but the partner can take some leave and I have I know several people especially from the former Soviet Union who sometimes get up to three years maternity leave so it's an interesting question to think of when we think about feminism because we can definitely say that the six weeks in the U.S. is no good But what is actually the best maternity leave? Is longer the best when we think about feminism? Is someone having three years of maternity leave actually the feminist ideal? What happens if someone has three kids sort of every three years apart? They've now been out of the workforce for almost a decade. And yes, they're guaranteed to keep their job and they have an income during that. 
but how do their actual coworkers view them, their supervisors view them, and does that matter? Is that still the ideal because they're getting to spend the most time with their children in the young age, a very important time? I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just posing it because I think that is one of the very important questions when we think of these leaves and feminism. Is there an ideal time? When it comes to the partner taking leave, that's another very good question. I know for our first child, my husband was, we were in Belgium already, but my husband was still working for the Canadian government. So he got six months of leave, which was very different than what he got from his employer in Belgium for the second child, which was six weeks, which we sort of managed to make eight weeks, which was still very, very nice. I'm really grateful that we got both of those. But it was very interesting as a as the male partner, as the father, both the reaction he got from some people he worked with who were like amazed he was going to take any leave, but then also the absolute you know, glee and praise he would get for taking the leave from certain people. When we think about maternity leave, again, we have to think about that capitalist view because we are always looking at what is the value of the work we're doing? Why are we doing this work? And this isn't to say that people don't love their work. I love my work. I am self-employed and I'm very fortunate to live in a country where daycare is affordable. We are going to definitely need to be talking about daycare at some point. But I send my children to daycare even though because I love working. I love my children. I love them more than I my work. But I do also love my work. And when we are thinking about parental leave, we definitely need to think about who the parental leave is for, what is being offered, but also what is it all about? What is it giving people? How is it giving it to them? What is the most feminist form of maternity leave? Because if we are offering someone three years of maternity leave, but they really love their job, again, not to say they don't love their children, what happens if they don't want to take all that maternity leave? Who is watching their children? And what are people saying about them in society versus what are they saying about their male partners? So I think it's also really important whenever we talk about leave to be really thinking about paternity leave and parental leave, because that should be a feminist issue as well. And that, of course, takes us to the idea of working from home being a, or rather, that, that of course, takes us to the issue of being a stay-at-home parent or a working parent. which is another one of those questions that definitely divides feminism. I talked about on a previous episode how it was that was the question that was seen as the spark of, quote unquote, the mommy wars. So are you staying home with your children? Are you going to work and leaving your children with someone else? And which sort of is the feminist ideal? Because if you are going to work, who is watching your children? Are you paying some different woman to watch your child, what's happening to that person's children. There's a lot of questions. This is an episode of a lot of questions. I don't necessarily think if there's a right answer, I know what it is. I think one of the beautiful things about feminism is it can be more than one thing. There's another topic that I would say definitely divides feminism 
is the topic of birth. We're going to have an episode very soon about pain relief in birth, about location of birth. It, I'm not sure if it's going to be one episode, many episodes. I've got some interviews lined up. But as a feminist, one thing I definitely believe in personally is choice around pregnancy and birth should be a part of any conversation we have about choice and bodily autonomy. I am pro-choice when it comes to all aspects of pregnancy and bodily autonomy. I don't think that that necessarily gets discussed very much, so I will say that right now. And feminism definitely has some things to say about that, especially when we think about birth and pain control. So I hear probably about it when I have these birth episodes my personal decision with both of my births was to have a home birth. And to me, that was definitely a feminist choice. I, my entire pregnancy was followed primarily by midwives. So I was never weighed at all, which in, Bel in Brussels, at least when you're with a doctor, not always, but very often they weigh you at every single session. And if you are just like a smidge over where you're supposed to be, you start getting a lecture about how you can't gain too much weight during pregnancy. And that was not for me. During my actual birth, both births, there were no internal exams. The midwives asked me, did I want to have my cervix checked at my first birth? When they first got there, I said, okay, check, make sure things are actually happening. They are. And after that, nobody's hands were in me. And in the second birth, I, you know, I had been through birth, so I was a little bit more confident in what was going on. And nobody's hands were in me at all. And to me, that was a huge feminist thing. I was able to move however I wanted to during my entire birth, including pushing my babies out. So to me, a home birth where it was with no pain intervention was a feminist move. There are definitely people who see the most feminist decision in birth to be have as medical a birth as possible. The idea of an epidural being a super feminist issue. There is a comedian and author. I love Jessie Klein. She really speaks to me if you haven't read her books, but she probably one of the only things I don't like see completely eye to eye with her is around epidurals. She wrote a chapter in her first book, which was in the New York Times. I'll link it in the show notes. An article called Get the Epidural. And her view of the epidural is essentially that there are no other medical issues where someone would be told to do something without pain relief. That is the patriarchy that is saying that you should be in pain when you don't have to be. So we'll talk about epidurals and why people choose to have them and not have them in a separate episode. But there is definitely the feminist view that if you don't need to be in pain during birth, you don't have to. That this idea of birth being painful is the payment for the quote-unquote original sin of Eve eating the apple, and we no longer have to experience that pain, so why would we? And there is no way to talk about all of these topics without also talking about the question of emotional labor. There was a famous comic that came out a few years ago. I will put that in the show notes as well. And it's, there's been more and more articles about this topic of emotional labor, that even in heterosexual couples where both partners are working equally and even managing tasks around the house equally, the female partner is still seen as the person who does the 
what is known as emotional labor. So scheduling activities, remembering the birthday parties, buying the presents for the birthday parties, preparing for swim class, you know, all of these sort of things that you always have to have going in the back of your mind. And that so much of that is sort of framed by society. I know that we're planning a birthday party for my child right now. And I went into the class WhatsApp group, all the parents, and it's all the moms. I think my husband might be the only dad in that group. And that's only because my child's in a French speaking school. And as you could hear by me trying to make pronunciations earlier, I don't speak French and he does. So we're both in the WhatsApp group, but every other parent in that group, as far as I could tell, was a mom. And it just seemed natural to me that I was invite finding the moms to get the info for the for the birthday. And definitely when I hear from the schools, I hear from them a lot more. I'm the person that's arranging all the camps, etc. The Our daycare always calls me first if they need to call me, even though, like I said, my husband is definitely easier for them to communicate with. So some of that is just sort of happening. If If the woman is the one that's being contacted, then she's the one that's going to sort of keep doing all of this stuff. So again, I don't have answers to any of these things. I think they're just important things to talk about. And the one other thing that I thought would be really important to talk about when we talk about feminism and motherhood and parenthood is what we are doing and what we are teaching. Some of these things are maybe some of the more obvious things. I remember when I first joined a parenting group in Belgium, I was, I don't even think I had had my first child yet. And someone was posting a question about how do I get things going in the morning faster. You know, everyone's, everything takes so long. I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. And someone said, why don't you get your your six-year-old son to empty the dishwasher? And the original poster wrote back something like, oh, I wish I had a daughter. They're just so much better at these things. I could never get my son to do that. And as you can imagine, the feedback was was pretty swift and was sort of like, if you need a penis to, <laughs> to empty the dishwasher, you're probably emptying the dishwasher wrong. And, you know, Most people don't actually enjoy doing this stuff. We're just sort of conditioned to think that girls do this. So that's sort of the the basics of things. And I think I think it's starting to change. I think what's maybe problematic in my household, my husband does more of the cooking than me because he's an amazing cook and we're pretty even with most of our other household tasks. But he also grew up with a dad that did that stuff. And I'm going to guess whatever the generation is where that shift has to happen is really, really challenging. So if someone's married to someone who didn't grow up seeing their dad doing that, and I know lots of people who came from very patriarchal societies where that was not the job of the of the dad. So having a son and a daughter see a man do this can be sort of challenging, but probably something worth advocating for. I don't ha- like I said I don't have advice on how to do that. Traditionally, there was always sort of this idea that, you know, girls get the dolls, girls get the cooking toys and boys get the blocks and the stem toys. And I think what we're seeing more and more is definitely at least from feminist parents and parents who consider themselves feminists making sure that girls are getting access to all sorts of things. Like they're getting the STEM toys, they're getting the blocks, and they're getting lots of books about girls can be anything. Girls can be strong. Girls can be powerful. I mean, I know 
even the original, that book, Feminist Baby, which when we first had it, when my first child was born, was considered kind of amazing. And But the Feminist Baby was very clearly a girl. And I believe there are new sequels, let's say, since then that we have some feminist boys too. And we're starting to see more books and other messaging around boys can be feminist too. And what does that actually mean? When we think about being feminist parents, it definitely has a lot to do with how we are raising our daughters and how we are raising our sons. One thing I think is just not discussed enough is we have as a society, at least a certain segment of a society, starting to do a lot better by making sure that we are reaching our girls with these feminist messages. And we see a lot of like, girls can do anything. I don't have to be a princess. Lots of STEM toys targeted towards everyone. But what we don't necessarily see enough of, or really almost any of, is offering the other side to boys. So a great, I think it's a Facebook post, I will find it and tag it. A couple different ones that I know are really nice, but there's one about an author talking about how she writes books with princesses in it and principals don't want to have her speak at their school because boys won't like princesses. And no one would ever, I can't imagine someone saying, well, girls don't like superheroes because everyone loves superheroes. And quite frankly, probably most everyone loves princesses until they're told not to. Princesses, some princesses have magic. They're sparkly. Who doesn't love that? But we're very often telling our boys that these are not things for them. And one of the problems with that, despite just telling children what they can and can't like, is that when we do that, we're really internalizing the patriarchy ourselves. We are saying that there is this ideal and we want all our children to be able to be whatever they want to be, as long as what they want to be is this patriarchal ideal that loving science is okay for everyone and loving cars is okay for everyone. But loving princesses, that's just a girl thing. And girls don't have to like them, but boys shouldn't like them. So I think Please, if you are the parent of anyone, and probably if you're listening to this, you're a parent, but maybe not, but certainly if you have boys at home, take a step back and notice how you're raising them, how you're dressing them, what toys and TV shows you're offering them, and not just you, your partners, your parents and in-laws, relatives, and the teachers at the school as well. So... That would be that last thing to think about, and I'm, I'm not sure if we're quite there. So this, like I said, really just touched the surface. We didn't get into really questions about gender, so I think maybe we should have another whole episode of that. I'm definitely not an expert in that field, so if you're listening and you know someone that would be, that you think would be good for an interview, please let me know. I think we could just dig deeper on this topic in general. I'd love to look more at the history of these things, but I'm going to leave us there for now. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and subscribe. That really helps. Tell your friends, tell the person you want to know more about feminism, and I will see you soon. We were off for a while for the holidays, but I'm back, so... I really hope you enjoyed listening.